Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Headlines about cybersecurity have become increasingly common. If I could throw out a few sobering statistics, according to CSAS of 2021, there is a ransomware attack every 11 seconds. That's up from every 39 seconds in 2019. Small businesses are the target of nearly 43% of all cyber attacks, up 400% on 2019 numbers. Cyber risk is at the center of digital transformation. And cyber vigilance has heightened over the past week. In the last few days, we've heard that the UK financial regulator has told banks to strengthen and test their defenses against the threat of Russian-sponsored cyber attacks as the standoff over the future of Ukraine deepens. In the US and New York, Department of Financial Services late last month alerted financial services companies to the possibility of retaliatory attacks if sanctions against Russia were to be imposed. And as of this podcast, the EU has stopped short of issuing formal written warning about the need to be more cyber secure. But for sure, the world is in a heightened state of alert regarding cyber terrorism. With investment managers making ever greater use of technology, the risk of cyber attacks is also increasing. And as a result, regulators are introducing or updating their rules and guidelines to ensure that financial sector ICT systems can withstand ever more sophisticated security threats. It is within this context that AIMA is about to publish its latest set of guidance, which walks through the considerations that an investment manager should make about what it needs to do to prepare and respond to a cyber threat or disruption in order to continue being an effective and reputable investment manager. And we are delighted to be speaking to two of the principal authors and whose firm sponsored this guidance, Matt Franco and Dave Collins of RSM. Hello to you both and thank you for joining us on The Long Short. Thanks very much for having us. Happy to be here. So with more and more of the world using technology today, whether it's using the Internet of Things, it's working off your phone, playing computer games, or just working off a desktop, you know, as I said at the beginning, the most critical area of importance, arguably, is the protection of this data, the network that it's housed on, or the device that you are using. So can you give us an insight as to why cybersecurity has become such a big business? Yeah, I mean, just a lot of cases, it's a matter of organized crime and and state-sponsored organizations finding ways to disrupt and find ways to uh, be able to quickly make money. And with, you know, the the rises in those types of activities and, and really with organizations finding more and more ways to make money off of breaches, you know, with the rise of things like ransomware, I think that is why we have seen such a, a rapid expansion of this industry over the past few years, because organizations have to do something 
to stop themselves. It's no longer where, you know, a ransomware issue costs, you know, $50,000 to remediate, you pay the ransom and you're good to go. It's a matter of now millions of dollars in payments that need to be made. And, you know, if organizations decide not to make those payments, they're going to be investing millions of dollars to get their systems back online. So we're, we're seeing a lot of, of companies adapt to those types of, of changes that we've seen within the threat landscape and make uh, the necessary investments to protect themselves so they don't become, you know, another statistic of, of the, you know, ransomware attacks or, or data theft uh, types of attacks that we're seeing right now in, in the world. Yeah, I, I read that 100% increase of ransomware attacks uh, last year compared to 2020. Uh, Dave, right? I mean, it's becoming ever more sophisticated and uh, and I guess uh, ever more regular now in terms of those um, hacks and, and attacks on businesses and, and on ordinary users. Yeah, it's it's becoming quite prevalent because it's low effort on the size of the attacker. Um you know, uh, an attacker uh, or a bad actor out there has nothing but time. Um, so they can be doing this across multiple platforms, um, trying to attack multiple companies searching for vulnerabilities where, uh, you know, cybersecurity programs within the companies are solely focused on defending their own borders. So it's, you know, it's an easy opportunity for somebody to kind of cast a, you know, cast a line out into the water and, yeah, I, I read that a hundred percent increase of ransomware attacks uh, last year compared to twenty twenty. Uh, Dave, right? I mean, it's becoming ever more sophisticated and uh, and I guess uh, ever more regular now in terms of those um, hacks and and attacks on businesses and and on ordinary users. Yeah, it's it's becoming quite prevalent because it's low effort on the size of the attacker. Um, you know, uh, an attacker uh, or a bad actor out there has nothing but time. Um, so they can be doing this across multiple platforms, um, trying to attack multiple companies searching for vulnerabilities where, uh, you know, cybersecurity programs within the companies are solely focused on defending their own borders. So it's, you know, it's an easy opportunity for somebody to kind of cast a, you know, cast a line out into the water and, see where they get where they get a reaction to that and there's so much to dive into in this guidance that's coming out but but just before we do could you help set the scene for us a little bit uh, in the context of what we've seen in the past few years in terms of uh, this shift to hybrid working this greater reliance on cloud uh, to support that and we obviously heard a lot as we say about uh, this uptick in in the past few years uh, in the amount of cyber attacks out there and uh, the, obviously the, the training around security that went with it since the pandemic began. Has this really been a rude awakening for some people? Yeah, definitely a, a rude awakening for some folks. And, you know, I know as we, we talk about, you know, the, the world shifting to being more hybrid working environment, right? Which means that the borders that Dave talked about that we need to protect are expanding because it's no longer we have to worry about folks connected to an office network and then protecting everything inside that office network. As you adapt more cloud technology, you have a more mobile workforce, 
we're increasing, you know, number one, the, the number of devices that we need to protect. We need to protect mobile devices, laptops, phones, things like that. Now we need to protect cloud environments, you know, Azure, AWS, those types of, of technologies. And we still need to protect our old borders, which were our network, right? Our corporate network, our, our office environments. And I think the rude awakening is the fact that organizations have to invest more now. It's not, you know, again, just that, that small environment they need to protect. They need to train their users better. They need to have better identity and access management. As I log into, you know, a third-party cloud provider or, you know, our network is set in the cloud or I'm logging into our corporate network, you know, we need to do a better job of, of managing identities and having those types of solutions, multi-factor authentication. A lot of those, those things were, you know, remarkably not in place. And we saw as, as we went to the hybrid uh, working environment with, with the pandemic, we saw a rapid increase in simple incidents and in simple ways of organizations getting breached, like Dave mentioned, because organizations didn't have multi-factor authentication on remote desktop and they didn't have multi-factor authentication on their email access or, or anything like that, that made it you know, real easy for the hackers to simply guess passwords of these users. And you know, a lot of times people make easy to remember passwords. So rude awakening, I would say, and I think it's a rude awakening because we just weren't prepared. I, I would even add to that that, you know, a lot of organizations had cloud posture already at that point, but because they needed to expand that very rapidly, a lot of organizations didn't have a good understanding of what was necessary to appropriately secure the cloud. Um, they don't understand where the responsibilities lie between the cloud provider and what what they're required to do to protect environments and ensure uptime, and then what the organization has responsibility for, which absolutely ties into things like the MFA and the audit logs and, and ensuring the proper access controls. So it, it forced a lot of people to have to get up to speed on some very new concepts very, very, very rapidly that they weren't prepared for. And, and Dave, it's actually really reassuring that you've said that, because I know when I was reading through this, this worryingly large section outlining all the various types of cyber threat that are out there today some of these were obviously very familiar to me others less so so uh, could you just give us an outline of sort of the top two or three threats that are out there and and by top i mean in terms of the most common and, and maybe the most threatening if that makes sense yeah absolutely um ransomware is probably still right at the top of the list. Um, it's obviously the most prevalent. Um, it gets the most publicity. Um, it It is obviously the one that's doing the most damage, right? Uh, companies go into an immediate panic mode if their environment gets locked down. Um, and then the questions of, do we pay a ransom and hope that that's going to work? Or, you know, what, how do we, how do we bring business back online to address that. So that's that's still number one. I think in addition to that, we've seen quite an uptick in insider threat, um, making sure that not only that you have the, the trust and the resources internally that are going to do the right things, but, you know, we've undergone a, a global pandemic for a couple of years. It's financially impacted individuals in multiple ways. And uh, bad actors and and 
uh, you know, crime organizations are looking at that as an opportunity to find new ways to get into organizations. You know, if they can offer to pay somebody off to get their credentials or to get access to a network or to get shared data, um, you're seeing a, quite a bit of an uptick in that. Um, I think the other one that's really become more prevalent is, you know, building off of the, the traditional phishing type attacks into, you know, the ones that they're now calling vishing and smishing and, and whatever acronyms they want to create around it. But social media engineered attacks, as well as, uh, you know, the latest campaigns that we're seeing are the text message attacks, right? Somebody purporting to be the CISO or the CFO, and they need somebody to take action on something, share information, or uh, even man-in-the-middle attacks where somebody has been able to put some pieces of business information together to create a false invoice, that they know is from a trusted supplier, but they submit it and say, oh, but the payment account changed. We had some problems, so you need to pay this amount immediately because it's past due, and you need to pay it to this new account. Um, seeing a, a huge uptick in those kind of attacks. But uh, anything to do with the social media aspect of things and, and where somebody can footprint that is is something that is continuing to grow at a very rapid pace. And this new AIMA guidance looks more closely at the impact of remote and hybrid working and, and the fund manager cyber policies related to that. Certainly the resiliency of investment managers and professionals um, was tested during this period in ways that had never really been tested before. And the sudden need to move to remote working you know, called for the investment funds industry to rely heavily on virtual tools and SaaS solutions, not to mention you know, a really strong infrastructure to keep the workforce going. And now we're seeing that shift to the hybrid working arrangement. Matt, how has the asset management sector then responded from your perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, they've responded overall quite well. We've seen, you know, a lot of investments in in ways to create you know more secure working environments in these areas right so when we talk about a lot of those those hybrid working tools the SaaS solutions the you know remote um, ways of connecting to the environment we've seen a, a pretty big increase in the use of identity uh, management solutions um, you know those types of solutions that allow us to use one username password as users across all of our different uh, platforms that we may now have available to us. And that makes it, you know, better uh, from a security standpoint, because it's it's less that we uh, need to worry about from a, an access control standpoint. It's less from a user perspective where I would have to remember, you know, numerous usernames and passwords, thus the likelihood of me making something that's easy to guess, like, you know, winter 2022 exclamation point, for example. Uh, you know, those those types of, of solutions we've seen uh, roll out quite a bit. Uh, the other, you know, area we've seen is the mass adoption of multi-factor authentication. It's, it's rare these days where we go into an organization and we find that they do not have multi-factor authentication implemented. Now, do they have it implemented everywhere they should? Great question. And that's, you know, that's, that's some of the pitfalls that we might see. But they do have multi-factor authentication in some way, shape, or form, which is great because now that's educating the users. It's getting the users more used to doing those types of things. 
So then as we implement it into other places like email, obviously VPN, uh, you look at you know the SaaS-based solutions having multi-factor authentication there to protect organizations. You know, seeing that roll out uh, may be an area of improvement that we can continue to see. Uh, but that you know that has been a positive sign uh, from my my side. We've seen increased investment, and we've seen increased knowledge and awareness from the executive team. Uh, to want to, you know, better secure the organization because of the fact that they're aware of the heightened risks due to, you know, the multi-environment, um, you know, workforce and the multi-environment, uh, you know, technology um, ecosystem that that we've developed as organizations. It's it's you know not as secure as it once was if we're working on you know multi-cloud platforms multi-sas based solutions as well as you know that corporate hybrid there's lots of places where you know we make one mistake as the folks protecting you know that could be you know the end of of an organization it could be you know enough to to cost the organization millions of dollars whereas the hackers they have to be right one time out of a million we can't be wrong once. And we've addressed the question of cloud a little bit throughout this, but but I really want to sort of zero in on this point because obviously cloud is in many ways the great enabler for a lot of these uh, services that we've used even before pandemic forced us all to adopt remote working. So, so just to really zero in on that, how has the adoption of cloud computing changed cybersecurity protocols? Yeah, to me, it, the the biggest thing there is the knowledge gap that we have. Um, you know, cloud uh, very much is is technology. And technology has a lot of similarities across the different platforms, but where we have seen, you know, the need to make improvement is in that knowledge gap, is in the intricacies of the different platforms. If you're going to stand up, you know, Microsoft Azure you really need to get the training, get in-depth knowledge of, you know, how things work from an access perspective, the changes and nuances between how they name accounts and how they label accounts and how those permissions might be different is, is causing a lot of issues for organizations we work with. If you're, you know, working with you know, other types of platforms and, you know, there's little intricacies with how you're setting up buckets or how you're setting up, you know, different parts of, of those environments and you're doing it without having in-depth knowledge or having somebody on the team that has in-depth knowledge. We've seen folks make, you know, simple mistakes that have granted access to what they had had seen as normal users they're granting them basically what is considered global admin rights to those tenants and those platforms that you know normal users shouldn't have because going back to Dave's point on the top 3 you know attack vectors right now it's easy er to fish you know the the common user versus someone that is heightened in awareness from a, a cyber standpoint because they work in it every day. And if those people have more rights than they should because of common simple mistakes, that's what's causing you know some of the biggest issues from a cloud perspective. And we spent the first half of this going through what I imagine is only scratching the surface of the various degrees of attacks that could come through. 
But we don't want to make our listeners too nervous. I'm, I'm sure there's a few people who are frantically Googling already. But just turning to what people can do to mitigate some of these issues. Uh, obviously, this guide includes uh, a host of suggestions and proposals. But if we could just elaborate on a few of those about what would constitute effective governance. Whether it's dealing with the current things that we're dealing with or, or even pre-pandemic issues, a, a good governance program, a good cybersecurity program, starts with a good foundation. Um, it's focusing on you know, what, what I would consider to be kind of three main areas. Knowing what you have. And I don't mean that necessarily just from an inventory standpoint. Um, it's not just about what computers do I have. It's about what data do I have? What people do I have? Um, understanding the environment you're working in. Setting rules and standards. So once we know what those things are, right, where are the, where are the fence lines of the yard that we can operate in? Um, you know, what is acceptable behavior? What's not acceptable behavior? Policies and procedures within an organization, right? It's defining the, the rules, the laws of our organization. And then I think the last one is identifying risk. You take all of that, combine it together, and then out of that, you take a holistic look and say, okay, so where are the areas that I have to be concerned about? What kind of data do I have that needs potential special protection or that needs more protection than other areas? How do I interconnect things and how do I make sure those connections are safe? So building off of all of those building blocks right? That's, that's all the foundational stuff that needs to happen to develop a governance program. I think in today's day and age with the quick advances in technology and, and now the, the significantly greater cloud adoption that we're seeing, people get caught up in the new and they get caught up in, you know, the newest blinky light tool or, or the newest warning that comes out that gets press. And if you look across the multitude of breaches and incidents that have occurred over even the last decade, most of those have occurred because of errors in foundational things, in basic IT security things that have been built upon, right? There's, there's always some outliers that, yeah, a new, a new opening was found, a new zero day that somebody was able to take advantage of. But look at some of the, the big data breaches that have occurred. It was access control. It was somebody created a cloud folder where they were storing their data um, in, a, in a cloud provider bucket and they didn't secure it properly or they didn't ensure the access control was done correctly. Um, it's easy credentials, right? So it's, it, it's all that foundational stuff that when you're building out a program is absolutely crucial, but you can't forget about it as your program continues to mature and as new threats become prevalent because they're still going to need some of those foundational gaps to become effective. We talk about the uh, the LP, the investor considerations regarding cybersecurity across the alternative funds industry. Um, Dave, has there been an increase in investors' interest in governance and specifically firms' cyber incident planning? I see it every day. Um, yeah. You know, when an investor is looking at where they want to make that investment, right? They want to ensure they're making a solid investment. They're making something that they're going to get in return on that investment. And we're seeing every day um, those investors becoming more enabled, 
by the knowledge that they have, what the news is sharing, things like that, where they're starting to become more educated and they're asking those questions up front. If I'm going to invest in, in this company, how do I know that you're protecting the stuff that you do so that I'm going to get a return on my investment? Um, you know, it's we, we even see it in the acquisition space where you know due diligence processes and things going on, those due diligence processes are getting deeper and deeper. And it's it's mirroring a lot of what you're seeing from the investment side. It's if I'm going to invest, are you at a stable point? Are things solid from a cybersecurity standpoint? Or is that investment going to have to help shore up or improve? So I'm going to lose a little bit of my initial investment for operational costs and things like that to improve the environment. And I may have a longer window to try and, and see any return on that investment. Um, so there's a lot of understanding that needs to be there, but there's a lot more educated questions that are coming up front by those investment decision makers on where they're going to best spend and invest their money. So investors are are doing, as you say, they're doing a much better job of incorporating cybersecurity due diligence in the overall process. Um, have you seen firms embedding cyber in the investment decisions? Every day. Right. Every day. Um We've seen a, a huge uptick within firms investing in their own cybersecurity platforms, but if they're looking at outside investments or acquisitions or anything like that, they're doing quite a bit more in-depth understanding of what that cybersecurity program looks like. At the end of the day, if those things aren't properly identified, that can cause more pain for the investment for the purchaser down the road, right? Um, if, if things go unnoticed or undiscovered, that could require more capital to address it. It could require, you know, uh, lower profit margins on things. There's a significant impact for that. So organizations want to have some of that knowledge up front. There's even the possibility of, you know, if there's an acquisition made and something goes undiscovered and then it comes to the surface three months, five months down the road, Right? There could have been pricing changes that were negotiated during the contracting per phase of that or, or a change in the investment. There could be reputational damage that comes out of that. And then you even get the liability of, you know, we, we now have a new owner that we've only had for a certain amount of time. So who wears the responsibility for the liability and, and the problems that were caused out of that? So a lot of these investors, a lot of these organizations are doing more in-depth due diligence up front to try and insulate them from, from those long-term potential problems. Uh, a popular refrain that I, that I often hear when it comes to cybersecurity is that firms tend to leave it to the IT guys. Is that fair? What is your sense regarding the level of expertise that an ops person or someone from C-suite management would have generally regarding cyber threats and, and just awareness around cyber? I, I hate to say it, but I still think it's a common theme. Um, but that being said, uh, I will say the privacy landscape and the cybersecurity landscape on a global scale um, are taking away the ability for senior management and for, for C-suite to be ignorant of these things. Um, delegation is absolutely appropriate and expected, but you still have oversight. You still hold the responsibility. So you can't just say, I've got a great IT guy, I trust him, and he does it all. 
you've got to oversee that. You've got to have that communication with that IT guy to understand what are the problems that we're facing and are they impacting us and, and what can we do to prevent this kind of stuff? So it's forcing the hand of, of those top level individuals in the organization to be more aware, to be more involved so that they can speak knowledgeably about it. Yeah. And, and, and Tom, it's, you know, it's not just a technology problem. And I know a lot of folks say that, but it really is a business problem. There's only so much that we can do from a technology standpoint to put a Band-Aid on something that's broken from a process standpoint. So what organizations really need to do is look at how they're designing their business processes and what are the inherent risks in how they're conducting their business and how can they change that to make it more secure from the start and then apply the technology and the controls to further patch things up. I think a lot of organizations miss that aspect and they just wanna operate the business the way they wanna operate the business and let the IT guys handle security. Well, it doesn't really work that way because if you have something that is inherently flawed from a security standpoint and how you're conducting your business, there's nothing that the IT folks are gonna be able to do to actually solve that problem. So that's really where the business, the IT folks, the cyber folks need to come at it with that holistic lens on, are we doing things in an inherently secure fashion that still allows us to conduct our business appropriately? Or are we really setting the IT and cyber folks up to fail? And I think that's a question that really the executives need to look into and look at upon themselves as to how they might be able to design their business processes to be a bit more um, or a bit less risky and a bit more secure. So if I'm understanding you both correctly, there's some progress has been made in terms of the Hearts and Minds campaign and in making this uh, a firm wide issue and, and not just a few people in IT. But have we seen a significant shift and has there been significant progress in the last few years? You know, we've talked about how much this is sort of exponentially ramping up and, and the need to be uh, IT native or, or sort of however you'd like to describe it. And, and are we seeing a bit of a skills gap emerging in, in maybe newer and older firms? And, and what can we really be doing to mitigate this? Is this just com coming down to training and allowing people to, you know, sort of allowing them into that world that might be very foreign to some areas of senior management? Because at the end of the day, they hold the purse strings. And so if it comes to upgrades, you're going to need buy-in all the way at the top. Yeah, I think I think some of this, you know, is in the um, when we talk about getting buy-in from executives. Yes, executives should and could do more to educate themselves, so that way, as those buying decisions come up, that they have an awareness of what they are actually purchasing and why they are purchasing it. I also think that from an IT and a cyber standpoint, we could do a better job at putting things into business, you know, verbiage and make it make sense, if you will, no pun intended. But that's, you know, when, when we talk about it, we got to put it into dollars and cents for the business so they, they can understand, hey, here's what our risk is. 
here's the dollars that we need to spend to decrease our our risk by X. And here's, you know, what, what it's going to end up doing and, and how it's going to benefit the organization. I, I do see that we're starting to get better from a cybersecurity standpoint. The executive side, the C-suite side, you know, we can do a better job as cybersecurity to educate them on those things so that way they can come up come up to speed. When you talk about a skills gap overarching in cybersecurity, I do think there, you know, is is a, a gap in the number of individuals within, you know, globally, if you will, that have, you know, in-depth cybersecurity knowledge. I, I know, you know, in some cases, it's because of what we're looking for as organizations. We, we kind of limit ourselves by saying someone needs to have a degree or they need to have, you know, 15 years experience. I can tell you that a lot of the folks that are coming out of high school, coming out of college right now, they've grown up with technology. They understand it. They spend their, you know, all of their time on it. And they, they have skills and knowledge that we can take advantage of. You know, five years experience is, is probably, you know, good enough for someone to be able to jump in and, and really make an impact versus us having these, you know, requirements of you need to have 15 years experience in X. We've seen it a lot where you need to have 15 years experience in cloud. Well, nobody has 15 years <laughs> exactly. in cloud. So you're pretty much limiting your ability yes. to recruit right there, right? Um, so it's a matter of setting the expectations accordingly. Um, it is a matter of, you know, the world getting better at educating the youth on cybersecurity. We don't have cybersecurity in, you know, primary school, in, in you know, pre-college, if you will, prep school. And we don't, we do have it now um, in colleges. And you know, it's, it's a matter of, of getting folks trained earlier and often on, on these types of subjects. So that way, as we continue to evolve as, as a society, that we have folks that are interested in it, are prepared to get into it, um, and and are, are ready to go. And I think that's the only way that we're going to solve the, the large skills gap that we have. I mentioned at the top of the podcast the imperative for firms to be more cyber vigilant is now a critical area of interest for regulators globally. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of the high-level initiatives being pursued by regulators to ensure that organizations are more cyber prepared, more cyber robust? So I, I think we're seeing it in a lot of different areas. Um, Regulatory is certainly driving quite a bit of that um, through just new standards that they're establishing, um, requirements for for compliance and different compliance initiatives. Um, We're seeing quite a bit from uh, the privacy sector in a global environment because, uh, you know, every section of the globe has different privacy requirements those privacy requirements significantly impact security standards and security controls and things that need to be done. Um, And, and that's a completely mixed bag because you've got so many different uh, nation states, countries, uh, you know, organizations that set similar, but yet different requirements that have to be met. Um, So trying to find, you know, commonality there that we can establish a good security program. Um, I think one of the biggest driving factors overall, though, has been the focus on 
uh, third-party partnerships and and data transaction. Um, the the ability that we used to have to say, well, we did our part, but you know, our our partner over there was the one that had the problem, and and so they should get all the blame or they should get all the penalty, um, has gone away. Uh, in cyber insurance companies. Um, Governments, regulatory, um, you know, we see a, a high level of this in the United States where the onus is on you as the organization to make sure that your data, that your information, that your security is appropriate, accurate, and, and well positioned wherever your stuff is, whether that be at a partner, whether that be in the cloud, in your own operations, you are ultimately accountable. So it's your responsibility to make sure you reach out and make sure that that third party is protecting things properly. And if things don't happen well, if you've done your due diligence, you're going to be able to shift the blame, but you're still going to have significant reputational damage, right? So there's financial penalties that that come into play for an organization, whether directly or indirectly, that have caused a significant uptick in awareness around that. And you know, regulatory issues like to drive that home with penalties of some kind, um, usually financially based, um, because for a business owner, that's that's how you make the most noise, right? If you threaten threaten income or, or loss of funding, uh, that carries significant weight to a business. So they they use that as a means to an end to help them say, this is an area you have to take seriously. This is an area you have to focus on. Um, and, and you have to be thorough with it. You, you, you know, kind of like I said before, you cannot claim ignorance anymore. You can't claim, I relied on somebody else to do it. You have to have the paper trail that goes to show you've done the checks, you've done the balances, and you've made sure that that stuff is in place so that you're protected for it. And I think that is the perfect, ominous closing statement on this episode. Uh, Matt Franco and David Collins, thank you so much for a sobering and timely update on this and for putting your shoulder to the wheel to get this guide over the line for all AMO members. I'm sure it'll be a huge benefit and for sponsoring the event as well. Thank you both so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This spring, AMA is excited to be back in person with our Digital Assets Conference taking place on May 11th in the heart of New York City. This is the crypto conference for the hedge fund and institutional investor community, featuring thought-provoking conversations with innovators and practical breakout sessions tackling critical investment and operational issues. The 2022 Digital Assets Conference builds on the work of AMA's Digital Assets Working Group, DOG, in our inaugural 2021 Virtual Summit. AMA DOG is a senior level industry steering group tasked with driving AMA's regulatory engagement, thought leadership, and operational guidance in digital assets. The group focuses on issues specific to institutional buy side investing in this space and includes digital asset native and traditional hedge fund firms and investors. Whether you are a crypto veteran or just testing the waters, we look forward to seeing you in New York this May. For more information or to buy tickets, visit ama.org slash events. And now in a bonus piece to this episode, we are very pleased to be joined by our colleague, Director of Asset Management Regulation and lead on this upcoming report, James Delaney. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. 
So you just heard from our friends at RSM there uh, about all the various aspects uh, of cybersecurity that fund managers need to be aware of. What was your instant reaction to what they had to say? Yeah, I thought it was a fascinating discussion, Drew. I thought, um, you know, their insights into the developing threat landscape, looking at, across at sort of ransomware and uh, the insider threat as well, I thought was very interesting. Um, fortunately, they didn't use too many acronyms, which was good, because in the cyber world, you can um, lose track of what, what people are saying sometimes. So I thought they covered it really well. Um, and obviously, the, the big topic around hybrid working and, and cloud technology as well. So they offered some really good insights, I thought. So, James, as the AMA lead on the latest cybersecurity guide, what are some of the main updates in this latest edition for members to look out for? Well, Tom, I think before that, I'd just like to thank Matt and Dave from RSM, obviously, as well as the other 14 or so members who, who contributed to our latest cybersecurity sound practice guide. We're always very grateful to all our members who volunteer their time and, and share their expertise and experience to help develop our sound practice guidance and in turn help drive the alternative investment industry forward. For well over 20 years now, AMA has been providing guidance and, and standardization for its members across the globe. And, and our guides really comprise now the widest body of, of sound practice output and guidance on the alternative investment industry. Now, the, the, the 2022 edition of the Cybersecurity Guide includes a, a new updated glossary. As we all know, when it comes to cyber, it, it can be easy to get lost in the alphabet soup of abbreviations. So hopefully that's helpful for members. But as was mentioned in your conversation with Matt and Dave, the, the guide includes an overview of the cyber threat landscape. So looking more closely, for example, at ransomware, insider threat and, and social media engineered attacks. Then in terms of actual cyber policies, we, we have an update to third-party risk management, vendor due diligence, and a number of revisions to the section on employees, including obviously remote working and, and access to control policies and procedures, as well as an update to the section on cloud-native technology. And finally, we have a new section on IT and cyber-related regulation and, and legal guidelines. And just on that last point, uh, we briefly touched on regulation during the discussion, but from where you sit in AMA's GRA team, what's coming down the pipeline in terms of new regulation? Well, Drew, there's a lot. Um, last year in, in the US, the SEC announced an enforcement actions on a, on a number of firms arising from cybersecurity incidents that led to exposure, for example, of, of personal data of thousands of clients. And this year, they followed that up by issuing just earlier this month, a new rule proposal on cybersecurity risk management. If adopted, those proposals would require registered advisors and, and registered funds to disclose detailed information about their cyber risks and cyber incidents to current and, and prospective clients and shareholders, as well as reporting any significant cyber incidents to the SEC within 48 hours of reasonably concluding an incident has occurred or is currently occurring. Worryingly, these rules that set forth detailed cybersecurity prescriptions could become an easy hook for an enforcement action, even when a firm has made reasonable efforts to comply with the prescriptions. Based on, on the language of the proposed rule, not having reasonably designed cyber policies is a, is a fraudulent, deceptive or manipulative act, practice or course of business. As one SEC commissioner noted, this proposal is intended to give cyber the top billing on funds and advisors' agendas. 
So AIMA will be working closely over the coming weeks with our members to respond to that proposal. Then in Europe, the, the FCA in the UK is, is bringing forward new rules next month on operational resilience. And also in, in the EU, the legislators are currently negotiating a new regulation on digital operational resilience. We've seen similar guidance and legislation in the APAC region, given the increased tech adoption and, and the increasing use of remote working as well. So a lot going on. So this is an area of critical importance, even more so given the, uh, you know, the events of the last week um, in the Ukraine. Um, so just in terms of that uh, area of focus in cyber and operational resilience, how can our members get more involved in our work? A great question, Tom. So AIMA has set up cyber and, and technology groups for our manager members and they meet on a, on a quarterly basis to discuss the, the latest cyber threats and resilience measures and solutions, as well as any cyber or IT-related regulatory developments. The, the groups are regional and comprised of CTOs, CISOs, and, and other senior employees of firms that are focused on operations, technology, and IT infrastructure. It's, it's a very useful forum to enable the exchange of, of information and to facilitate really the understanding of, of key cyber risks and issues facing the asset management industry. We, we do also have an operational resilience group that is open to all members globally. And this peer group provides a, a discussion forum for our members to discuss regulatory developments, key risks facing the industry, and really to share relevant sound practices around operational resilience, such as cybersecurity, outsourcing, data security, and business continuity planning. As you can imagine, that group has been particularly busy over the past year or so. Finally, it would be remiss of me not to mention that we are hosting our inaugural AMA Cybertech Forum, so focusing on all cyber and technology-related developments impacting our industry. And that will be held virtually on April the 20th. So I'd encourage folks to, to join us, and, and more information on that can be found on the AIMA website. Thank you, James, for that excellent roundup. And I'm sure you'll have no shortage of interest in your groups and the event once this hits the proverbial shelves. Uh, so I think all that's left now is to, to thank you and all our guests today for joining us on The Long Short. Thanks very much, Drew. Bye for now. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.